Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Today we continue our series in the fullness of life from John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and they, guess who that is? That's us. And have it to the full. This is a promise of Jesus. This isn't just wishful, hopeful thinking that, you know, some people may have abundant life. This is a promise from Jesus and his intention that we experience a fruitful and victorious life. And so we've looked at several key elements of this kind of life, which includes abiding in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and most recently, the warfare of the Spirit. And when we define spiritual warfare, what we mean is that conflict being waged in the invisible spiritual realm that is being manifest in the visible physical realm. That conflict being waged in the invisible spiritual realm that is being manifest in the visible physical realm. And this has astounding implications for our everyday lives. For what it means is that everything visible and physical is the result of something invisible and spiritual. That conflict that you got going on in your life, the hard things, the challenges, there is a spiritual root to all of that. And we spend so much time trying to, again, lop off the heads of the dandelions that we never get to the root of it, and the dandelions just come back more and more and even stronger. Therefore, only by addressing the invisible spiritual cause can we fix what is wrong with our visible physical lives. That's what makes this series so important, and I'm so glad that you've been regularly a part of it and so tuned in and encouraging as we've gone through it. The good news for us is that in this spiritual warfare, this battle that is ongoing in our lives, God has given to us absolutely everything that we need to be victorious in spiritual warfare. Aren't you glad for that? Everything that we need, he has given to us. And specifically, as we've seen in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, he's given to us the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, And now today, we'll be looking at the sword of the Spirit. Would you please stand with me as I read the text? You should be quite familiar with it by now. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, where it says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we afresh and anew acknowledge that we have a very real enemy, a spiritual enemy who comes to steal and kill and destroy, and we see evidence of that all around us. And at times, left to ourselves, it can discourage us, it can fill us with despair and hopelessness, 
And God, there very well may be some folks who are gathered here today who feel that way. God, for all of us, I pray that we would leave here with a renewed sense of your might and your power that is available to each and every one of us to overcome the enemy in our lives. So God, would you open our ears, our hearts, our minds, and God, would you open my mouth to proclaim only what comes from you? And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, as we've done in previous weeks, we will unpack the meaning of the sword of the Spirit by considering three things. Uh, first of all, Satan's scheme, specifically his strategy and how he's attempting to come against us. And then God's specific provision to overcome that scheme. And lastly, our implementation, or what do we do with this? How do we actually put it into practice? And so let's look first of all at Satan's scheme. His past schemes, if you remember, that we've studied have included lies, accusations, conflicts, disruptions, and despair. He's got lots of stuff to throw at us, doesn't he? Today, his scheme is temptation. His scheme is temptation, which simply means the enticement to do wrong. The enticement to do wrong. And he's pretty good at that, is he not? He is able to identify our personal weak points, those places where we are vulnerable. And he baits a trap to appeal to our vulnerabilities. And before we know what hit us, we, we, we go for the cheese, we go for the bait, and the trap springs, and we are left to deal with the horrid consequences of our sin. We've all been there. We all know what it's like. Satan's temptation reminds us that all that glitters isn't gold, Right? He's really good at dressing stuff up and making it look shiny and enticing and desirable. And then we reach in and the trap snaps and we get entrapped ourselves. What appears to be a dream becomes a nightmare. And we reap the bitter fruit of what we have sown. Again, if we could go around the room and we could each probably share some stories about how we were duped, how we were baited by Satan. We gave in and had to deal with the consequences. We were lured into the trap only to become trapped. Such was the experience of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. We're going to talk about it again today. Uh, let me read from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And as we previously discussed, Satan's first scheme is to deceive us by getting us to question God's word and then his character. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the garden, of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, what does this tell us about Eve? There's a reason that I highlighted, neither shall you touch it, because if you go back to God's original commandment, that's not what he said. That's an inaccurate rendering of God's command. He said nothing about touching it. He only referred to eating it. Eve had a general knowledge of God's word. She kind of knew what it said, but it was not an accurate and specific knowledge of God's word. And so here's the thing. When all that we have is a general knowledge of God's word, where we kind of think we know it says something about we are vulnerable to Satan's scheme of deception. We are vulnerable. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so here's the part where Satan attempts to deceive by causing Eve to question not only God's word and what God said, but now his character, his goodness. 
Essentially, Eve, God's holding out on you. He doesn't really want you to be happy or fulfilled, and you're going to have to take matters into your own hands if you're going to be self-actualized. If you're going to be all that you can be, you're going to have to do it yourself and not trust in God and in His ways. And then finally, in verse 6, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Sin is enticing, is it not? Otherwise, it wouldn't be tempting. It looks so good, so desirable, and we want it so bad. And we can rationalize in all kinds of ways to talk ourselves into giving in and going to that trap. But in reality, it's a trap, right? It's a trap. I had lots of uh, sports references last week. Too many. Today, it's Star Wars references, okay? So here's the first. Pay attention. See if you can find the other. On to verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That, that phrase, they knew. For the first time in their lives, they knew guilt. And they knew shame. And so they tried to cover it up themselves, just as we have tried to so many times. But to no avail. Because we read in verse 8, And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. How tragic. How sad. You know, I, I get the impression, maybe I'm reading too much into the text, that these walks in the cool of the garden between God and Adam and Eve, that this was a regular thing. This was something that they would do together. They would fellowship together. They would spend time and enjoy one another's presence and company. But now, after giving into temptation, Adam and Eve hide from God. And so it is when we give into temptation. We hide from God. We hide from each other. Adam and Eve learned the hard way that sin always takes you farther than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you meant to stay. And it will cost you more than you meant to pay. That's a popular quote that's been around for many years. It's a, <laughs> I was thinking about it, and I Googled it, and it came up, and it was attributed to so many different people. Um, but it's an old quote. I don't know if we actually know who originally said it, but isn't it true? Every single one of us can in some way give testimony to the truth of that statement. statement. So Satan's scheme is to lure us with bait into the trap. His scheme is temptation. So let's discuss for a moment three truths about temptation. Number one, first truth, everyone is tempted. Everyone is tempted. Satan would love to make you feel that your struggles, your temptations are unique to you. That no one else has the thoughts that you have. No one else has the struggles that you have, the enticements that you have, and that you are especially sinful. He'd love to make you feel that way. And when that happens, when he succeeds in that, what does that cause us to do? To hide like Adam and Eve to try to cover, to hide our sins so that we will not be found out. In our hiding, we isolate, and then, therefore, we remain in bondage, and Satan has us exactly where he wants us. But the truth of the matter is found in 1 Corinthians 10.13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Think about the implications of that. So you have impure thoughts? Join the club. 
Join the club. You're tempted to break all of the Ten Commandments? Guess what? You're not unique. You're not different. So get over the tendency to think that you are so different and to isolate and to hide because victory ultimately comes through humility, contrition, and transparency. So, three truths. Number one, everyone is tempted. Number two, temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. You feel the pull in a sinful direction. It's like a, this this would another good Star Wars reference, like a tractor beam pulling you into the Death Star. The pull is not in and of itself sinful. How do I know? Because Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Be encouraged by this. Jesus was tempted in every way that you have been tempted. The text says so. Which means that he understands how you feel. He understands that tractor beam and that pull. He knows the struggle with temptation probably even more than we do. Now, why would I say that? Because he would be even a greater target of Satan than we are, right? So when we talk about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, I don't believe that that was a one-time occurrence. I believe Satan was constantly hammering away at Jesus, tempting him. And yet, it says here, he was tempted in every respect as we are, but yet was without sin. Now, what that says is, temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted. Jesus was sinless. So don't feel bad, guilty about being tempted. You're in good company. You're in the company of Jesus Christ himself, for he was tempted. It's been said that you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can sure keep them from building a nest in your hair. Right? Temptation is that bird that flies over your head. That thought that Satan tries to to tempt you with, to lure you into the trap. That is the temptation flying over your head. It is when you entertain the thought and allow the bird to build a nest in your hair, that's when you cross the line from temptation to sin. So three truths about temptation. Everyone is tempted. Temptation is not sin, and sin is not inevitable. Sin is not inevitable. Contrary to another great lie that Satan feeds us, oh, you're just flesh and blood. You can't help yourself. You just have to give in. There's nothing that you can do about it, which are all lies from the pit of hell. How do I know? Because 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Every temptation, it says, is accompanied by a way out, a way to overcome it, and the power to do so. We must not buy into Satan's lie that says, oh, sin is just inevitable. You can't help it. There's nothing you can do about it. We can be victorious. My Bible tells me so. So three truths about temptation. Everyone is tempted. Temptation is not sin. Sin is not inevitable. So this is Satan's scheme, temptation, the enticement to do wrong, to lure us into his trap and therefore to place us in his clutches of bondage. Let's now move on to God's provision. This is serious stuff. I mean, obviously, Satan has had a lot of success with this scheme. What on earth might God give to us to help us to overcome Satan's scheme of temptation? The answer is found in Ephesians 6.17. 
Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This word sword is an interesting one. It's from the Greek makara. Um, in Roman terminology, it's the gladius. It is a short sword. A short sword, about two feet long. In contrast, last week we talked with the, with the helmet, we talked about the broad sword that was about three to four feet long. This is more like a dagger. So the sword of the Spirit, the term that's used there, it's more like a dagger, a short sword. This is what Peter used in the Garden of Gethsemane when he caught, cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the Jewish high priest. And so in our digital flannel graph here, that's probably not accurate because that looks like a long sword to me. A Peter's sword would have been this makara. It would have been the short sword that was only about two feet long, more like a dagger. Well, this weapon was typically used for hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Cutting and stabbing, a style of fighting which was close in. Remember, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And therefore, it required thorough training for this kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat. It wasn't enough to simply possess the makara. To possess the dagger, one had to know how to use it. Otherwise, it was no good, and you would be easily defeated. You had to have expertise and to know how to use this weapon. It wasn't a clumsy weapon. It was a precise weapon. Now, how, do, how does all of this relate to the Christian sword in Ephesians 6.17, which is described as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? Two key things to note here just from these few words from Ephesians 6.17. Number one, it is the sword of the Spirit. It is the sword of the Spirit, which tells us two things. Number one, it is from the Spirit. It is from the Spirit. This is not some weapon of human origin. It, rather, it's divine. It's God-given, God-ordained. It's from God himself. We cannot man manufacture such a weapon. We can only receive it. We can only receive it because it is of the Spirit, which means it is from the Spirit. And because of that, letter B, it is empowered by the Spirit, which is awesome. It is empowered by the Spirit. How much power does the Spirit have? He is God himself, the third person of the Trinity. He has all the power of God. He is omnipotent, and therefore, he is able to overcome anything and everything that Satan throws at us. No wonder we are given these promises that tell us that sin is not inevitable and that we are not doomed to live lives of defeat. We are meant to live lives of victory because we have this sword of the Spirit that is from the Spirit. It is empowered by the Spirit. We read in 2 Corinthians 10.4, love this verse. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, they're not man-made, but they have divine power, divine power, omnipotent power to destroy strongholds. I love that. No stronghold that Satan attempts to erect against us is too great because nothing is too difficult for God. Uh, maybe some of you were up in Traverse City yesterday and got to see the Blue Angels fly. Um, what an amazing weapon the F-18 is. An amazing weapon. And I love it when it flies right over your head and it just kind of makes your body shudder and shake because of the power in those engines of that jet aircraft. A powerful thing that man has created. But did you know that that Bible that sits in your lap right now is infinitely more powerful than an F-18 Hornet? Infinitely more powerful. Why? Because while the F-18 is man-made, 
The sword of the Spirit is from the Spirit, and it is empowered by the Spirit. It has divine power to demolish strongholds. And we are also told that the sword is number two. The sword, I already let the cat out of the bag, didn't I? It is the Word of God. The sword is the Word of God, the Bible. For you see, Scripture is the weapon God has given to us to defeat temptation. Scripture is the weapon God has given to us to defeat temptation. But for us to be effective with this weapon, remember, this isn't a broad sword. This isn't some clumsy weapon. This is the makara. This is the short sword. This is the dagger that requires great precision and expertise. But we've got to trust it. We've got to be able to trust our weapon. A soldier who doesn't trust his weapon is going to be a soldier who lacks confidence and is going to be a soldier who is ineffective on the battlefield. So what grounds do we have for being confident in our sword, the makara, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? Well, the good news is we can be absolutely confident in God's Word, the sword of the Spirit. Why? Let me tell you why. Because the Word of God is three things, three words that start with the letter I. They are all very important and they matter very much. The first of these is the Word of God is inspired. We can be confident in our weapon to overcome the schemes of the enemy and temptation, number one, because our weapon, the Word of God, is inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, when I say inspired, I'm not referring to the way I get inspired when I listen to the Rocky IV soundtrack and the Eye of the Tiger comes on and I get inspired to go run and lift weights to fight Ivan Drago. I get very inspired when I listen to that particular song. As you can look and see, I haven't listened to it in a while. Um, But that's not the kind of inspired that we're talking about here. Rather, when we say that the Bible is inspired, the meaning comes from the Greek word theopneustos, theopneustos, which means God-breathed. That's what that word inspired means. All Scripture is God-breathed. And so a better translation of 2 Timothy 3.16 is the ESV, which reads, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Because remember, it's from Him. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's from him. It's empowered by him, which means that the very words of Scripture are the very words of God. The very words of Scripture are the very words of God. God does not just validate the words of human authors and see what they wrote and say, yeah, I'll endorse that. I'll write off on that. God gives them the actual words. This is called verbal inspiration. Verbal inspiration. The words written by the human authors of the Bible are the very words of God. But, watch this. This is where it gets really cool. God didn't dictate those words to them. So it's not like they were secretaries. What'd you say, God? Okay, I'll write that. What? What else? I'll write that. Rather, there's this dynamic interplay between the human and divine. God did not override unique personalities or life experiences or styles of the human authors. That's why there's so much diversity in the Bible. Rather, he used them in a mysterious way that only God could explain that we have trouble to understand. The end result is through this dynamic interplay of the human and the divine. The words written in Scripture are the very words of God, but God didn't dictate it in some wooden kind of way, he used those human authors and got them to say exactly what needed to be said. Mysteriously, wonderfully miraculous, resulting in the very word of God. 
What a miracle is that Bible that you hold in your hand? Great evidence of God's authorship of the Bible is the amazing cohesion of those 66 books. And by cohesion, I mean that they are absolutely consistent in their message and do not contradict. Genesis to Revelation. Truly amazing when you consider these facts. The Bible was written by 40 different human authors. Comprised of kings and fishermen and priests and government officials and farmers and shepherds and doctors. 40 different human efforts, uh, authors, writing over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents in three different languages in eight different genres of literature, law, history, wisdom, poetry, gospels, epistles, prophecy, apocalyptic, all together. And guess what? It all fits together. It all points to the same thing without contradiction, cohesively. Why? Because at the end of the day, it has only one author, God himself. No other way to explain it. That all of these books, all of these authors, over all of this time, it all supports the one same message, and that is Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The Word of God is inspired. Therefore, because it is the sword of the Spirit, it is from God, it is empowered by God, we can be confident in it and trust it. Second I, inerrant. The Bible is inerrant. Because see, here's the thing. If, if, if the words of Scripture are God-breathed, they are from God, then there will be no errors in them, right? Why? Because God doesn't make errors. It's part of His nature. He's holy. He's perfect. And therefore, so is His Word. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. In Psalm 12, verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The words of the Lord are pure. They are without error. The point being, a Bible that is breathed out by God is an inerrant Bible. It is without error. Theologian Wayne Grudem, he defines inerrancy like this. He says, The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything which is contrary to fact, This definition focuses on the question of truthfulness and falsehood in the language of Scripture. The definition in simple terms just means that the Bible always tells the truth and that it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. Now, a skeptic might say, Aha! The inerrancy only refers to the original manuscripts. And honestly, we don't have those. That's true. What we have are copies of copies of copies of copies. And the truth of the matter is that over such a long period of time, those human copyists, they did make errors. How do I know? Because the manuscripts that we do have don't always agree. Somebody's got to be wrong. I have this book in my office, um, a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. Sounds pretty exciting, doesn't it? What this, but it actually is interesting. What this book does is it records and expounds on those verses where manuscripts differ. It, it records and expounds on those places where manuscripts of the Bible differ. So here's the rub. If only the original manuscripts were inerrant and we don't have those, how can we truly say the Bible is inerrant and can we even make such a claim? I believe that we can. Here's why. The textual variants in that book that I just mentioned account for only 1% 
of all the words of Scripture. 1%. What that means is that when we compare manuscripts, we know with confidence 99% of the words are from the inerrant original. Pretty staggering when you think about the mechanics of that, the logistics of that, the Bible in your lap. 99% of the words we know to be consistent with the original manuscripts. After all these years. Further, that 1% that I just mentioned deals mostly with issues of spelling and punctuation and not issues of doctrine. When scribes would copy Sometimes they would drop a punctuation mark here somewhere, or a, a word would be misspelled. It was those kinds of errors that we're talking about, not issues of first importance. And so the bottom line is this. We, what we hold in our hands is very, very, very close to that inerrant first manuscript, being that the Bible you hold in your hands is absolutely reliable and trustworthy and we are able to put supreme confidence in the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, Word of God is inspired, it is inerrant, it is also a third eye which is indestructible. It is indestructible. Knowing what we know about the power of Scripture and God's provision for overcoming Satan's scheme of temptation, it's no surprise that Satan would do a head-on attack against the Bible, right? No surprise that he's continually attacking it from all different ways, from all different angles, outside the church, and sadly, tragically, from within the church. One example of the attack against the Bible is the Roman emperor Diocletian from the second century. He launched a relentless persecution of Christians and an attack against the Bible, ordering that every vestige of scripture that they had at that particular point in time be burned. And when two years of his persecution had passed, Diocletian erected a monument on the ashes of a burned Bible with the inscription, Extincto Nomine Christinorum, which means extinct is the name of Christians. And yet, here we are with our Bibles, right? Next, there was the French atheist Voltaire, 1694 to 1778. He predicted that within 100 years, of his time, the Bible would be forgotten. <laughs> but wouldn't he have been surprised to know this? 100 years after making that pronouncement, his home, guess who owned it? The Geneva Bible Society. <laughs> and used his home to print millions of Bibles which were sent all over the world. God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? And then there was this gentleman, Robert Ingersoll, who declared, he's the great agnostic, 1833 to 1899. He once held up a Bible and said, in 15 years, I will have this book in the morgue. 15 years later, guess who was in the morgue? He was. In contrast, we read Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living. Think about that. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Dimension, Dimension, not Dimension, Diocletian, Voltaire, Ingersoll, all dead, but the Word of God is alive. Why? Because it is indestructible. 1 Peter 1.24, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. A fitting tribute to the indestructibility of God's word is a poem I came across by a gentleman named John Clifford. He says, Last eve I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. When looking in, I saw upon the floor 
Old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he. Then said with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's word for ages skeptics blows have beat upon. Yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. Love that. God's word is that anvil that is unharmed. The hammers and all those who have struck blows against it over the years, they are gone. Why? Because the word of God is inspired, it is inerrant, it is indestructible, and it is further described as being sweeter than honey, a lamp, rain and snow, a fire, a hammer, water, a sword, solid food, a mirror, milk. Such is the beauty of this weapon that God has given to us to overcome Satan's scheme of temptation. The sword of the Spirit, from the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So that is Satan's scheme, God's provision. Let's talk about our implementation. And let's go back for a moment. This is really important to verse 17, again in Ephesians 6. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, there are different words used in Greek for word. One that we're typically familiar with is logos, right? Logos, word. But this one is different. When the word is translated here, it is actually the Greek rhema. Rhema, which refers to the spoken word and a specific statement of specific truths in specific situations. In our cases, we talk about the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, particular verses from the Bible. Again, this is in contrast to the word logos, which refers more to a, the word in a general sense. The entire Bible, if you will. A general knowledge of Scripture. But the sword of the Spirit, remember, it's a makara, it's a dagger, it's a weapon of precision, which requires great skill and training. Here's the application. Don't miss this. Just as a small dagger is applied with skill and precision, so we must apply the word with skill and precision. Just as a small dagger is applied with skill and precision, so we must apply the word with skill and precision. Just as Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan. What an example he gave to us. Let's, let's go over that real quick. Matthew chapter 4, you know the story. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now watch this. This is where Rhema, the specific spoken word of God, into a specific situation comes into play. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I love this picture of Jesus. He's defiant. He's wielding the sword of the Spirit at Satan. He is executing rhema, the spoken word, a specific word to a specific situation. It then happens again in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now notice, Satan's quoting Scripture here. Satan is quoting Scripture. And this is very dangerous. Because if we don't know Scripture well, we will not 
see, anticipate, and understand that Satan is twisting and using Scripture out of context in ways that may seem very right, but actually are very wrong. This was Eve's experience in the garden, wasn't it? A general knowledge of the Scripture. Yeah, it says something about, but not really knowing it. Well, in response to this temptation, verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here again, Jesus overcomes Satan's attack of temptation by wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God, speaking God's word to a specific situation in a specific way. That then happens a third time in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Do you see how he did it? In the importance of taking that sword, which is an instrument of precision, and using it precisely. I love uh, Vance Havner. He has a humorous quote about this episode. He said this, Our Lord vanquished the adversary with three verses from Deuteronomy. We tend to overlook the Old Testament in general, don't we? And certainly the book of Deuteronomy. But here we have Jesus quoting Deuteronomy. The word is so powerful that even three verses from this book in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, it defeats the enemy. Reminds me of the third verse of the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Why haven't we sung that yet? No, I'm just messing. We've had a lengthy conversation about this. Verse 3 of a mighty fortress is our God. It says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's Ramah. That's Ramah. A spoken word, a specific statement of specific truths in specific situations, which for our purposes is a particular verse in a timely fashion from God's word. But please don't misunderstand this, because you could walk away thinking that the Bible is a book of magic words and magic spells and incantations, and that all we have to do is say the words and we exercise the power of God. It doesn't work that way. Rather, the sword of the Spirit is only effective in the hands of a soldier under God's command. You hear that? The sword of the Spirit is only effective in the hands of a soldier under God's command, one who is surrendered and obedient, which means that before you wield the sword, make sure you yield your life. And I think that's perhaps where it breaks down for us a lot of the time. We want to wield the sword. We want to be victorious over the enemy, but we aren't quite as excited about yielding our lives completely to Jesus. We want to, we want to, be in, we want to call some of the shots. We want to be in charge. We don't want to completely surrender. If you are living in rebellion against God, the book in your lap is just a book. But to the soldier under God's command who has submitted to his authority, that book is the sword of the Spirit and has divine power to destroy strongholds. And so that is Satan's scheme, God's provision, our implementation brings us to the question, how is your swordsmanship? How is your swordsmanship? We've talked about the fact that just as a small dagger is applied with skill and precision, so we must apply the word with skill and precision. Similar to, here's the next Star Wars reference. 
Remember that scene in Star Wars where Luke Skywalker is learning how to use the lightsaber and he had to go through intensive training in order to use it effectively. You know, just Obi-Wan didn't just give him a lightsaber and say, hey, go at it, you're ready. There was a lot of effort, blood, sweat, tears, discipline, training that went along with being able to effectively use a lightsaber. It's no different for us. And I would contend this. One of the most important elements of our training in the makara, the dagger, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is memorization. Memorization, memorization is not just for our Awana kids. Memorization is for us, and we ought to be setting the example for our Awana. Can I ask you, church, who's setting the example? Are the Awana kids setting the example for us, or are we setting the example for the Awana kids? We tend to put memorization somewhere on a back burner, if even then. But we all know the verse, don't we? The psalmist. I have hidden your word in my heart. That's memorization. I've hidden it in my heart that I might not sin against you. I love it. Memorization, rhema, sword, overcoming temptation, all there in the Old Testament. It's all right there in the book of Psalms. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I know memorization of Scripture is hard, and the older we get, the harder it becomes, but Satan will do everything he can to make it seem harder than it really is. And he will do everything he can to keep you from memorizing. Why? Because it is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's what becomes rhema in our lives. We're not going to let that happen, are we? Are we? Oh, thank you. So to encourage you in memorization, I'm going to offer you two helps, two helps. And, and by the way, um, I used to meet in, was, uh, in, in California in a discipleship group type setting with a gentleman who was in his 80s. And we started memorizing scripture. And he wanted to quit. He wanted to give up. He said, this is just too hard. I said, Joe, don't quit. Don't give up. Stick with it. You can do it. It's a muscle, Joe. It, it's a muscle. You'll get over the hump. And lo and behold, this gentleman memorized the first chapter of the book of James because he didn't quit and because he recognized the significance and the importance of memorizing the word of God. Because if we don't memorize, guess what? When Satan comes at us and he twists scripture and he comes at us and he entices us and we have just, we, we, all we have is Eve's general knowledge of scripture, we kind of know what it says. We are sitting ducks for the enemy. We cannot respond with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Two helps that I could give you today. A couple of apps a couple of apps. The first is one called Remember Me. If you look in your notes, I've got links to both of these apps. But the beautiful thing about these, number one, it, it stores the passages that you're memorizing, new ones, old ones for review, but it also has games. Maybe you like games? We all like games. It has scripture memory games. So you're, it's just not rote, although I do think there is benefit to writing scripture longhand and saying it as we do. I think there's, especially as you're first learning a passage, I think that's important. But these apps kind of take it to another level to making it engaging and almost fun. And then the more you do it, it's just like, it's just like exercise. It's like, oh, it hurts so bad when you first start. But when you get over the hump, um, it's like, well, I miss it when I don't do it. I miss it. But it is so important and so necessary because without it, we're sitting ducks. Next app is one called Fighter Verses. Now, the apps are very similar, but they have some different activities and different kinds of games. Um, church, what if you spend as much time memorizing Scripture as you do on your phone doing other things? We do a lot of other things on our phones, don't we? 
What if you spend as much time memorizing scripture as you do on social media or as you do playing games or as you do with whatever? You would be an expert swordsman. You would. This is all a part of what it is to be a disciple who is scriptural. We talk about the importance of being a scriptural disciple. This is an important component of it, which is why Bible memorization is an important component of discipleship groups. Let me close with this quote from Thomas Guthrie, who said, The Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons, a laboratory of infallible medicines, a mine of exhaustless wealth. It is a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, and a balm for every wound. Rob us of our Bible, and our sky has lost its sun. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, spur us on this morning to greater discipline when it comes to our swordsmanship. This is not optional. (laughs) I guess it is, but if we take the option of not internalizing your word in our hearts, that we might not sin against you, the consequence is we will sin against you, and there's nothing more serious and tragic than that. You have given to us the weapon. God, may we discipline ourselves that we might use it effectively. You have given to us everything we need to be victorious against the attacks of the enemy. Far be it from us to neglect the armor and the weapons that you've given to us. Make us effective swordsmen, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.